Good day, ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests and cherished listeners. Welcome to an enchanting journey into the rich tapestry of Cherokee culture and tradition. Today, we embark on a voyage through time, guided by the ancient echoes of Cherokee folktales that have been passed down through the generations. Our first tale invites us to witness the mesmerizing narrative of the Daughter of the Sun. Imagine a world where celestial beings bestow upon us the gift of light and warmth as we unravel the mystical origins of the Radiant Daughter who brought the sun's brilliance to our earthly realm. As we continue our odyssey, we shall delve into the very creation of the world itself, picture a time when the earth was not yet formed, and the elements danced in the cosmic symphony. Join me as we explore the profound Cherokee beliefs surrounding the genesis of the world, and the tale that reverberates with the sacred connection between the spiritual and the terrestrial. The crackling flames beckon us to our next story, where we learn the fascinating account of how fire came to be a vital companion in the daily lives of the Cherokee people. In the warmth of these narratives, we discover the sacred teachings and the enduring significance of fire, a gift that illuminated the darkness and forged essential bonds within their community. We also learn which animals dived headfirst into the flames for the sake of getting that fire and how it changed them forever and to this day. And from there we embark on a contemplative journey into the heart of Cherokee wisdom as we uncover the intricacies of the origins of disease and medicine through folklore. With these poignant tales that encapsulate the struggle against ailment and the healing touch of ancient remedies, we gain insights into the profound respect the Cherokee held for the delicate balance between nature, spirituality, and well-being. And how we could to this day be fighting bears, birds, insects, and snakes, tooth and nail. So fascinating, this folk story. So, my dear friends, sit back, relax, and let the gentle breeze of warm, brewed tea waft up your nostrils and enjoy these ageless stories that transport you to a realm where tradition and folklore intertwine, revealing the beauty and wisdom of the Cherokee people. A slight preface, you legends, that I'm doing my utmost to pronounce the words in the Cherokee native tongue. If any of you lovelies out there know the correct pronunciation, please drop me a line via my email, which is storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And with great respect, let's jump into these tales. Cosmogonic Myths How the World Was Made The Earth is a great island floating in a sea of water and suspended at each of the four cardinal points by a cord hanging down from the sky vault, which is of solid rock. When the world grows old and worn out, the people will die and the cords will break and let the earth sink down into the ocean and all will be water again. The Indians are afraid of this. When all was water, the animals were above in Galunlati, beyond the ark, but it was very much crowded, and they were wanting more room. They wondered what was below the water, and at last, Dayuni Si, Beaver's grandchild, the little water beetle, offered to go and see if it could learn. It darted in every direction, 
over the surface of the water, but could find no firm place to rest. Then it dived to the bottom and came up with some soft mud, which began to grow and spread on every side until it became the island which we call the Earth. It was afterward fastened to the sky with four cords, but no one remembers who did this. At first the earth was flat, and very soft and wet. The animals were anxious to get down, and sent out different birds to see if it was yet dry. But they found no place to alight and come back again to Galunlati. At last, it seemed to be time, and they sent out the buzzard and told him to go and make ready for them. This was the great buzzard the father of all buzzards we see now. He flew all over the earth, low down near the ground, and it was still soft. When he reached the Cherokee country, he was very tired, and his wings began to flap and strike the ground. And wherever they struck the earth, there was a valley, and where they turned up again, there was a mountain. When the animals above saw this, they were afraid, that the whole world would be mountains, so they called him back. But the Cherokee country remains full of mountains to this day. When the earth was dry and the animals came down, it was still dark. So they got the sun and set it on track to go every day across the island from east to west, just overhead. It was too hot this way. And Tzika Gili, the red crawfish, had his shell scorched a bright red, so that his meat was spoiled, and the Cherokee do not eat it. The conjurers put the sun another handbreadth higher in the air, but it was still too hot. They raised it another time and another, until it was seven handbreadths high and just under the sky's arch. Then it was right, and they left it so. This is why the conjurers called the highest place Galqua Guine, the Gulen Latun, the seventh height. Because it is seven hand breadths above the earth, every day the sun goes along under this arch and returns at night on the upper side to the starting place. There is another world under this, and it is like ours in every way. Animals, plants, and people, save that the seasons are different. The streams that come down from the mountains are the trails by which we reach this underworld, and the springs at their heads are the doorways by which we enter it. But to do this one must fast and go to water, and have one of the underground people for a guide. We know that the seasons in the underworld are different from ours, because the water in the spring is always warmer in winter and cooler in summer than the outer air. When the animals and plants were first made, we do not know by whom. They were told to watch and keep awake for seven nights, just as young men now fast and keep awake when they pray to their medicine. They tried to do this, and nearly all were awake through the first night, but the next night several dropped off to sleep, and the third night others were asleep, and the others until, on the seventh night, 
Of all the animals, only the owl, the panther, and one or two more were still awake. To those were given the power to see and to go about in the dark and to make prey of the birds and animals which must sleep at night. Of the trees, only the cedar, the pine, the spruce, the holly, and the laurel were awake to the end, and to them it was given to be always green and to be the greatest for medicine. But to the others it was said, Because you have not endured to the end, you shall lose your hair every winter. Men came after the animals and plants. At first, there were only a brother and sister until he struck her with a fish and told her to multiply. And so it was. In seven days, the child was born to her, and thereafter, every seven days, another. And they increased very fast until there was danger that the world could not keep them. Then it was made that a woman should have only one child in a year. And it has been so ever since. And this was how the world was made. The First Fire In the beginning there was no fire, and the world was cold, until the thunders, Anihun Tikuala Ski, who lived up in the Galunlati, sent their lightning and put fire into the bottom of a hollow sycamore tree which grew on an island. The animals knew it was there, because they could see the smoke coming out at the top, but they could not get to it on account of the water. So they held a council to decide what to do. This was a long time ago. Every animal that could fly or swim was anxious to go after the fire. The raven offered, and because he was so large and strong, he thought he could surely do the work, so he was sent first. He flew high and far across the water, and alighted on the sycamore tree. But while he was wondering what to do next, the heat had scorched all his feathers black, and he was frightened and came back without the fire. The little screech owl, Wahoohoo, volunteered to go and reach the place safely. But while he was looking down into the hollow tree, a blast of hot air came up and nearly burned out his eyes. He managed to fly home as best he could but it was a long time before he could see well, and his eyes are red to this day. Then the hooting owl, Uguku, and the horned owl, Tiskili, went, but by the time they got to the hollow tree, the fire was burning so fiercely that the smoke nearly blinded them, and the ashes carried up by the wind made white rings about their eyes. They had to come home again without the fire, but with all their rubbing, they were never able to get rid of the white rings. Now no more of the birds would venture, and so the little Ukshuhi snake, the black racer, said he would go through the water and bring back some fire. He swam across to the island and crawled through the grass to the tree and went in by a small hole at the bottom. The heat and smoke were too much for him too, and after dodging about blindly over the hot ashes, until he was almost on fire himself, he managed by good luck to get out again at the same hole. But his body had been scorched black, and he has ever since had the habit of darting and doubling on his track, as if trying to escape from close quarters. He came back, and the great black snake, Guligi, the climber, 
offered to go for fire. He swam over to the island and climbed up the tree on the outside, as the black snake always does. But when he put his head down into the hole, the smoke choked him, so that he fell into the burning stump. And before he could climb out again, he was as black as the Ukshuhi. Now they held another council, for still there was no fire, and the world was cold, but birds, snakes, and four-footed animals all had some excuse for not going, because they were all afraid to venture near the burning sycamore, until at last, Kananeski, Amaya Yehi, the water spider, said she would go. This is not the water spider that looks like a mosquito, but the other one, with black downy hair and red stripes on her body. She ran on top of the water or dived to the bottom so there would be no trouble to get over to the island. But the question was, how could she bring back the fire? I'll manage that, said the water spider. So she spun a thread from her body and wove it into a tusty ball, which she fastened on her back. Then she crossed over to the island and threw the grass to where the fire was still burning. She put one little coal of fire into a bowl and came back with it. And ever since, we have had fire, and the water spider still keeps her tusty bowl to this day. And that is where the first fire came to be. The origin of disease and medicine. In the old days, the beasts, birds, fishes, insects, and plants could all talk, and they and the people lived together in peace and friendship. But as time went on. The people increased so rapidly that their settlements spread over the whole earth, and the poor animals found themselves beginning to be cramped for room. This was bad enough, but to make it worse, man invented bows, knives, blowguns, spears, and hooks, and began to slaughter the larger animals, birds, and fishes for their flesh or their skin. While the smaller creatures, such as the frogs and worms, were crushed and trodden upon without thought. Out of pure carelessness or contempt, so the animals resolved to consult upon measures for their common safety. The bears were the first to meet in council in their townhouse under Kuwa He Mountain, the Mulberry Place, and the old white bear chief presided. After each in turn had complained of the way in which man killed their friends, ate their flesh, and used their skins for his own purpose, it was decided to begin war at once against them. Someone asked, "What weapons man used to destroy them?" Bows and arrows, of course! cried all the bears in chorus. And what are they made of? was the next question. The bow of wood, and the string of our entrails, replied one of the bears. It was then proposed that they make a bow and some arrows and see if they could not use the same weapon against man himself. So one bear got a nice piece of locust wood, and another sacrificed himself for the good of the rest in order to furnish a piece of his entrails for the string. But when everything was ready, and the first bear stepped up to make the trial, it was found that in letting the arrow fly, after drawing back the bow, his long claws caught the string and spoiled the shot. This was annoying, but someone suggested that they might trim his claws. Which was accordingly done, and on a second trial, it was found that the arrow went straight to the mark. But here, the chief, the old white bear, objected, 
saying it was necessary that they should have long claws in order to be able to climb trees. One of us has already died to furnish the bowstring, and if we now cut off our claws, we must all starve together. It is better to trust to the teeth and claws that nature gave us, for it is plain that man's weapon were not intended for us. No one could think of any better plan. So the old chief dismissed the council and the bears dispersed to the woods and thickets without having concerted any way to prevent the increase of the human race. Had the result of the council been otherwise, we should now be at war with bears. But as it is, the hunter does not even ask the bear's pardon when he kills one. The deer next held a council under their chief, the little deer, and after some talk decided to send rheumatism to every hunter who should kill one of them unless he took care to ask their pardon for the offence. They sent notice of the decision to the nearest settlement of Indians and told them at that same time what to do when necessity forced them to kill one of the deer tribe. Now, whenever the hunters shoot a deer, the little deer, who is swift as the wind and cannot be wounded, runs quickly up to the spot and, bending over the bloodstains, asks the spirit of the deer if it has heard the prayer of the hunter for pardon. If the reply be, yes, all is well and the little deer goes on his way. But if the reply be, no, he follows on the trail of the hunter, guided by the drops of blood on the ground until he arrives at his cabin in the settlement, when the little deer enters invisibly and strikes the hunter with rheumatism, so that he becomes at once a helpless cripple. No hunter whose regard for his health ever fails to ask pardon of the deer for killing it, although some hunters who have not learned the prayer may try to turn aside the little deer from his pursuit by building a fire behind them in the trail. Next came the fishes and reptiles who had their own complaints against man. They held their counsel together and determined to make their victim dream of snakes twining about them in slimy folds and blowing foul breath in their face, or to make them dream of eating raw or decaying fish so that they would lose appetite, sicken and die. This is why people dream about snakes and fish. Finally, the birds, insects, and smaller animals came together for the same purpose, and the grub worm was chief of the council. It was decided that each in turn should give an opinion, and then they would vote on the question as to whether or not man was guilty. Seven votes should be enough to condemn him. One after another denounced man's cruelty and injustice towards the other animals, and voted in favour of his death. The frog spoke first, saying, We must do something to check the increase of the race, or perhaps we'll become so numerous that we shall be crowded from off the earth. See how they've kicked me about because I'm ugly, as they say, until my back is covered with thaws. And here he showed the spot of his skin. Next came the bird. No one remembers now which one it was, who condemned man. Because he burns my feet off meaning the way in which the hunters barbecued birds by impaling them on sticks and setting them over the fire so that their feathers and tender feet are singed off. Others followed in the same strain. The ground squirrel alone ventured to say a good word for man, 
who seldom hurt him because he was so small. But this made the others so angry that they fell upon the ground squirrel and tore him with their claws. And the stripes are on his back to this day. They began then to devise and name so many new diseases, one after another, that had not their invention at last failed them. No one of the human race would have been able to survive. The grub worm grew constantly more pleased as the name of each disease was called off, until at last they reached the end of the list, when someone proposed to make menstruation sometimes fatal to women. On this he rose up in his place and cried, Wadan, thanks. I'm glad some more of them will die, for they are getting so thick that they tread on me. The thought fairly made him shake with joy, so that he fell over backward and could not get on his feet again, but had to wriggle off on his back, as the grubworm has done ever since. When the plants, who were friendly to man, heard what had been done by the animals, they determined to defeat the latter's evil designs. Each tree, shrub and herb, down even to the grasses and mosses, agreed to furnish a cure for some one of the diseases named, and each said, I shall appear to help man when he calls upon me in his need. Thus came medicine and the plants, every one of which has its use if we only knew it. Furnish the remedy to counteract the evil wrought by the revengeful animals. Even weeds were made for some good purpose, which we must find out for ourselves. When the doctor does not know what medicine to use for a sick man, the spirit of the plant tells him. And this is the origin of disease and medicine. The Daughter of the Sun The sun lived on the other side of the sky vault, but her daughter lived in the middle of the sky, directly above the earth. And every day, as the sun was climbing along the sky's arch to the west, she used to stop at her daughter's house for dinner. Now, the sun hated the people on the earth, because they could never look straight at her without screwing up their faces. She said to her brother, the moon, My grandchildren are ugly. They grin all over their faces when they look at me. But the moon said, I like my younger brothers. I think they are very handsome. Because they always smiled pleasantly when they saw him in the sky at night, for his rays were milder. The sun was jealous and planned to kill all the people. So every day when she got near her daughter's house, she sent down such sultry rays that there was a great fever and the people died by the hundreds until everyone had lost some friend and there was fear that no one would be left. They went for help to the little men who said the only way to save themselves was to kill the sun. The little men made medicine and changed two men to snakes, the spreading adder and the copperhead, and sent them to watch near the door of the daughter of the sun to bite the old sun when she came next day. They went together and hid near the house until the sun came. But when the spreading adder was about to spring, the bright light blinded him and he could only spit out yellow slime, as he does to this day when he tries to bite. She called him a nasty thing and went by into the house and the copperhead crawled off without trying to do anything. So the people still died from the heat and they went to the little men 
a second time for help. The little men made medicine again and changed one man into the great Uktena and another into the rattlesnake and sent them to watch near the house and kill the old son when she came for dinner. They made the Uktena very large with horns on his head and everyone thought he would be sure to do the work. But the rattlesnake was so quick and eager that he got ahead and coiled up just outside the house. And when the son's daughter opened the door to look out for her mother, he sprang up and bit her, and she fell dead in the doorway. He forgot to wait for the old son, but went back to the people. And the Ukdena was so very angry that he went back too. Since then, we pray to the rattlesnake and do not kill him because he is kind and never tries to bite if we do not disturb him. The Uktena grew angrier all the time and very dangerous, so that if he even looked at a man, the man's family would die. After a long time, the people held council and decided that he was too dangerous to be with them. So they sent him up to Galunlati, and he is there now. The spreading adder, the copperhead, the rattlesnake, and the Uktena were all Men. When the son found her daughter dead, she went into the house and grieved. And the people did not die anymore, but now the world was dark all the time, because the son would not come out. They went again to the little men, and these told them that if they wanted the son to come out again, they must bring back her daughter from Saskinai, the ghost country, in Usunhi-yi, the darkening land in the west. They chose seven men to go and gave each a sourwood rod a hand breadth long. The little men told them they must take a box with them, and when they got to the Tsuskina E, they would find all the ghosts at a dance. They must stand outside the circle, and when the young woman passed in the dance, they must strike her with the rods, and she would fall to the ground. Then they must put her in the box and bring her back to her mother, but they must be very sure not to open the box even a little way until they were home again. They took the rods and a box and traveled seven days to the west until they came to the darkening land. There were a great many people there and they were having a dance just as if they were at home in the settlements. The young woman was in the outside circle and as she swung around to where the seven men were standing, one struck her with his rod and she turned her head and saw him. As she came around the second time, another touched her with his rod, and then another, and another, until at the seventh round she fell out of the ring, and they put her into the box and closed the lid fast. The other ghosts seemed never to notice what had happened. They took up the box and started home toward the east. In a little while, the girl came to life again and begged to be let out of the box, but they made no answer and went on. Soon, she called again and said she was hungry, but still they made no answer and went on. After another while, she spoke again and called for a drink and pleaded so that it was very hard to listen to her. But the men who carried the box said nothing and still went on. When at last they were very near home, she called again and begged them to raise the lid just a little because she was smothering. They were afraid. She was really dying now. So they lifted the lid, a little to give her air. But as they did so, there was a fluttering sound inside and something flew past them into the thicket and they heard a red bird cry, Quish, quish, quish! 
in the bushes. They shut down the lid and went on again to the settlement. But when they got there and opened the box, it was empty. So now we know the Redbird is the daughter of the sun. And if the men had kept the box closed, as the little men told them to do, they would have brought her home safely. And we could bring our other friends also from the ghost country. But now when they die, they can never bring them back. The sun had been glad when they started to the ghost country. But when they came back without her daughter, she grieved and cried. My, my daughter, daughter, my, my daughter. daughter, and wept until her tears made a flood upon the earth, and the people were afraid the world would be drowned. They held another council, and set their handsomest young men and women to amuse her, so that she would stop crying. They danced before the sun, and sang their best songs, but for a long time she kept her face covered and paid no attention, until at last the drummer suddenly changed the song when she lifted up her face and was so pleased at the sight that she forgot to agree and smiled. And this is the story about the daughter of the sun. Well, lovely listeners, as we draw the curtains on this enchanting story set, through the ancient wisdom of the Cherokee people, I want to express my deepest gratitude for allowing me to take residence in your ears and share these timeless tales with you. The Daughter of the Sun, the creation of the world, the gift of fire, and the origins of disease and medicine are threads woven into the rich tapestry of Cherokee folklore. In the glow of these narratives, we've been transported to a realm where nature and spirit dances in harmony, revealing the interconnectedness of all things and the spiritual connection between humanity and ghosts, the daughter of the sun with her radiant presence, and the cruelty of the sun god. When humans first met her, as we marveled at how the world was made, we also witnessed the delicate balance of elements shaping the landscape and life itself, the genesis of fire unfolding before us as a precious gift bestowed upon us all, carrying both the warmth and the power to forge connections and change our physicality. In the embrace of these ancient stories, we explore the intricate dance between health and illness as well, where the roots of disease are intertwined with the healing branches of medicine. The hatred from the animal kingdom, but the kindness and resolve from the flora kingdom. Through these narratives, the Cherokee people shared not only their history, but also the profound wisdom embedded in their cultural fabric. May these tales resonate in your hearts and minds, fostering a deep appreciation for the beauty found in diversity and the interconnectedness of all living things. I really, really hope you all enjoyed these set of folklore tales. And if you want to hear more, there are so many more that I do have. And I will work harder and harder to make sure I do not butcher any of the lovely words of the Cherokee people. And speaking of all things lovely, and with great thanks and with great respect, are my Patreon supporters. You can be my Patreon supporter by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. And there you can support me with a simple donation as much as a tea or a coffee a week. But I digress. I want to thank the absolute legends that keep this show pumping along. My first amazing human being is Matto Star, my Ode Night Tea Titan. The very man that grabs this podcast 
fly kicks it into the sky, slam dunks it, and cooks me a delicious curry meal with it. I'll tell you what, Matto, you are a legend, and I really appreciate your support. This podcast goes from strength to strength thanks to you and supporters like you. And as a heads up, I've written my response up for your latest email, and I'm going to be making some time this Saturday to record it and send it your way. I never forget, buddy. And thank you again, my friend, for all your awesome support. And to my amazing white tea warlord, Leza, the king of men, the fighter of boredom, the slasher of all things mundane. <laughs> Leza, I hope you're doing fantastic, mate. And thank you immensely for your brilliant support and your stalwart kindness to me and the show. You are absolutely a fantastic human being and thank you for being my pal. And to my Earl Grey enforcers and all of my supporters, I am lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, Jane Gumnick, Michael Krupp, Jandy Prinz, and Seductive Smiles. Truly marvelous people. And I thank you every single week and every month for your immense kindness. Thank you very, very much. Now, pour your tea, make it nice, ensure your flavoring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen, and as always, I hope to see you again. Thank you, you amazing people. Have a wonderful week. See you next Monday.